Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. It's time for part two of our exclusive interview with Goran Ivanisevic, and yes, it has a happy ending. Well, let's be honest, he'd lost three Wimbledon finals, so it's not like he didn't deserve it, although he didn't quite know it would happen like this. We'll also talk Heather Watson, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, and Roger Federer right here on the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello. I'm talking very very quietly this week because I'm trying not to sound too full of myself as a British person presenting a tennis podcast at a time when we've just had our first female singles title winner in 24 years. Oh yes, Heather Watson, just a couple of weeks after Laura Robson reached the final in Guangzhou, just a month after Andy Murray won the US Open, in the same week as Johnny Murray qualified for the O2 ATP World Tour Finals... We have a British winner yet again, Catherine Whittaker. Welcome to the Tennis Podcast. I am absolutely ecstatic. How are you? It's a good time to be British, isn't it? I'm very well, thanks. Yes. Can you hear all of those iPods and uh, iPads and iPhones and computers from around the rest of the world just clicking off this tennis podcast at the moment as we uh, as we revel in our British victory yet again? <laughs> yeah, we but are those so are all annoying. people in countries that have... Plenty of opportunity to be smug. You know, we just don't That's know right. when opportunities next going to come. come yeah, around. this so is it's our all about maximising of, uh, while you have the chance. Yeah, this is our time to revel a bit, isn't it? But no, no all joking aside, and and I try, I, I'll try not to be too 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 smug for the rest of the uh, the podcast because I accept that we it's only two British women and and we're they're number fifty and number fifty two in the rankings respectively are Heather Watson and Laura Robson, but these are. These are heady days for us here in Great Britain. And uh, and Heather Watson actually did um, a press conference back in the UK a, a couple of days ago. Or it was yesterday, wasn't it? After um, after she'd managed to uh, win that title in Osaka, and and there was huge interest. I mean, I noticed all of the uh, all of the national television stations here: BBC, ITV, Channel Four News, Channel Five News. They were all there. Sky Sports. They were all there to speak to. To, to Heather Watson and, and, and just can't get enough of her at the moment. She's such a personable girl, isn't she? She's somebody that the the public can really get involved in. People you just wish her well, don't you? You just want you want good things for her. You sort of you feel like you're able to share in her success because she's so smiley and she's so um she just seems like a great girl, doesn't she? I mean Yeah, well, um, she is. 
absolutely. No, I mean, that's exactly what she is. I, I interviewed her um, just on the eve of the US Open this year. It was, um, it was, I think it was either the same day or the day after she'd won the doubles title, I think, in New Haven the week before. And uh, and she came in to the U.S. Open. You know, she she'd not had time to to think about anything. You know, she hadn't had. You know, it was, it was the day before the tournament's starting, and here she was. You know, trying to get ready for her first round match. And she was quite happy to speak to anybody who needed to speak to her. She turned up with a smile on her face. She sat down and and was quite happy to chat and 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 spend as long as we needed. And it's refreshing to be honest and uh, I, th- I mean I would say that, that there are more players like that these days I think players do get it more and she certainly does but it's it's very right, very but I, pleasing but I think also what's so wonderful about her is that it all seems very natural doesn't it it doesn't she seem like she's putting on an act and is is conscious of needing to be you know needing to be friends with the media and everything it just she just seems to be very natural with it all to just be a very likable gal and to have a to have a good head on her shoulders, yeah. which is obviously no, going to serve her. I think that's her, true. And, and I remember the first time I met her was in uh, Australia, I think about four years ago, something like that, when she'd uh, when I first saw her name on the um, on the qualify on not the qualifying the junior list, and I think she got through to about the semi-finals and and she won one match when her opponent was cramping horribly and in just brutally hot conditions, and there was something right there. And then you thought, actually, this girl has the sort of attitude and and uh, constitution and and no little skill as well. I mean, she's a good a good mover, a good baseliner. I don't think she has a killer shot, but she certainly has a lot of the attributes that can take her quite a long way in the game. Yes, and I think that's. I mean, let's. I don't want to take anything away from it, but let's not get too carried away with the tournament victory. You know, I, th- I think I think in some ways it was a victory in in scheduling as well. You know, that was a perfect tournament for her to play. Um, you know, the highest seed in there was Sam Stozer, and she had a really disappointing run there. The highest seed that that Heather had to beat to to win that tournament was Annabel Medina Garigas, who's around about forty in the world, and you know, still a great result. But I think what it's most significant for is her confidence, especially with the manner that she won third set tiebreak. I think it's incredibly significant from a from a mental standpoint for her. You know, I don't think we should now be saying, oh, well, she's a world beater because so far she hasn't beaten anybody at the top. So I don't it's think a, it's a difficult one, away. isn't it? Because, you know, uh, there were a, a range of different sort of newspaper headlines uh, the day after her 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 press conference uh, to, to celebrate this win and, and to sort of review the year. And, of course, she has met her goal. She's in, in the top 15. Now she wants to go higher. But, I mean, there were some headlines I read virtually quoting her as saying, I can be the world number one. And I, I think what, what had actually happened is one of one of our colleagues had asked her, do you believe that you are capable of one day being the world number one? And as, as Simon Briggs in the... Um, in the Telegraph said today, it's it's kind of an impossible question to answer mm. in in a way that that is is not going to get you in trouble because if you if you say well yes I do think I can be world number one suddenly you've got those headlines and and that expectation if you say well no I don't think I can be world number one then you sound as though you're you're you're, you're setting your bar too low so but she's she's a very ambitious very competitive twenty year old girl I think she has to believe that that it's a 
a possibility, remote as it remote as it may be. You know, she has to believe that in in all the infinite ways that her career could could turn out, one of them could be that she'll end up as you know. I, th- I think it's important that she she believes that whether it's really yeah, absolutely. Or not. Don't put restrictions on yourself. It, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and actually, I would say as well, I think it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. A player okay it's a it's a little bit of a hospital pass in a way as, as I've mentioned there because you do get those headlines but I think that most people realize that uh, that she's an ambitious player and she will go as far as she possibly can in the game and she will stop pretty much at nothing within fair means um, in order to, to to get as high as she can possibly become and and I think that that's that's really all you can ask of any player yeah, I mean she's already, she moved to she moved to Florida what at the age of 12 13 she's already shown you know that she, she's not afraid of making sacrifices for her career is she? I mean that's a pretty major no. sacrifice to have to make at such a young age so um says a, no. says a lot Catherine as well that that uh, that it was Heather Watson on Monday morning grabbing the headlines I noticed Neil Harmon in the Times who we featured on the tennis podcast a few weeks ago I think wrote three different stories about her with all different sorts of angles. And, and really, Andy Murray, despite having played a, a sensational match against Novak Djokovic, which Djokovic eventually won in the final uh, there in Shanghai, that was really relegated as uh, to, to the, the supplementary story, wasn't it? Yes, which is interesting. It made me wonder whether if Murray hadn't, now that he's a Grand Slam champion... We we can be a bit more not certainly not dismissive. I don't want to say that, but you know we can be a bit more. We can be a bit more blasé. A bit more blasé, you know. The, the these winning a Masters series title for Murray isn't life or death as good as it gets anymore. You know, you do, you see is, now in Britain now that we're getting a winner every other week. You know, we can just sort of uh, brush it off yeah, as the, the as the norm, Masters, can't we? Small Catherine? fry, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's let's be honest. We're, we're enjoying it, and uh, um, we, we've had a, enough years of uh, of uh, barely having players to report on and, and so forth and talk about in a way that we would want. And uh, these are these are enjoyable times. Um, and uh, and it, no, it was a, it was a great week. But that was some match, wasn't it, uh, between Djokovic and Murray? I mean, that was one of the most brutal three set matches I think I've seen. It was. It was absolutely sensational, and. Uh... Yeah, it was, I mean, and another point sort of following on from what I just said there is that not only will the the British media not quite dissecting it and analysing it in the way that they perhaps would have done before he won the US Open, I don't think Andy Murray himself will be overanalyzing a defeat like that in the way he would have done a couple of months ago. Do you agree on that? No, I think you're right. I do, I do. And I think the biggest difference I've noticed in Murray since the US Open is that he seems to be looking at one match at a time and it's the, it's the horrible old cliche of one match at a time. And yet I actually think probably for the first time in his career he really feels able to do that because the pressure of, of will I ever win a Grand Slam has gone. He's done it. And now he can just get back to the nuts and bolts of training, of winning tennis matches... And frankly, if anybody asks him a question like that now, he just has to show them his trophy. Uh, I mean, yep. he doesn't have to worry about it anymore. I think the the only outstanding question, I mean, I suppose there are still outstanding questions. Will he ever get to world number one? Will he, will he be able to win another Grand Slam? I always remember um, uh, Pat Rafter 
um, getting branded a one slam wonder uh, at one stage in his career and uh, obviously he went on and won another one um, but you know players do get that sort of tag I mean Michael Stick, another one who's who's had mm. that and, and you know Richard cracking Krychek, player yeah. he was and Richard Krejcik you mentioned but and I suppose until Andy Murray wins Wimbledon there'll always be a a, a big uh, asterisk next to his his name as as one of the one of the greats certainly from a British perspective in that regard but you know I think it's it's simplified his life now that he's won a Grand Slam. It's like the it's like the transition from angsty teenager to self assured adult, isn't it? In tennis terms, yeah. Do you think I'll make make that move one of these days? <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, uh, why are you laughing? As though as though you're wondering whether I might. Uh, Andy Murray, I w- yeah, Andy Murray. I'm just thinking though about that match that he played against Djokovic. I mean, I thought. Murray had that one. I mean, I suppose we all did. He had five match points. But, you know, it felt as though he'd, he'd got Djokovic again. You know, he was in his head, perhaps. He'd figured out the way to beat him. I was The early part of that match reminded me of the way Djokovic was beating Nadal time after time after time last year. And, and so where does that leave us, the fact that Djokovic turned that round? Is that huge credit to him? Is that a, a, a concern for Murray? What do you think? Oh, my answer to that is I don't really know. Uh, obviously, huge credit to Djokovic. That goes without saying. I mean, I my um, I was doing BBM uh, BlackBerry Messenger commentary for for my parents because they just moved house and they're in a house without internet and TV and they couldn't watch. So my they were like, "Can you can you send us updates?" And I looked back through the comments that I'd been making. How'd you do that with a forty-two stroke rally? Well, not let's not ball by ball, shall we say, point slash game by game. And I look back through my comments, and I was saying things like, "Oh, Murray, Murray's got him." You know, I'm not even. This isn't in doubt. You know, especially after he went, what was it, five three up um, in the second set. I was, I was saying that you know Murray seems to have all of the hard hitting and all of the aggression and shot making of uh, of Djokovic and the movement, etc. But he also is able to play shots that Djokovic can't. He also has that creative genius that Djokovic doesn't. And then suddenly he's made everything that I said turn to dust. And that <laughs> either I was either I was um, being a bit of a naive idiot or um, Djokovic is made of something quite special. Or both, well, I think possibly. he is made of something quite special. I don't think you're that naive and you're not that much of an idiot. Um no, you're not an idiot at all. But I, I, I would say that it shows how precarious a lead can be in tennis, uh, particularly at that level. Even when mm. you've got match points, there's all you have to do is lose a match point, and you get that the the merest, smallest little momentum change. And as soon as you get a momentum change, a match can change. And I think that that that's what that proved to me is that Djokovic is is a player that will never give in even when he's match point down against Roger Federer at the US Open he will go for a winner and if he makes it watch out you know he he's still there he's still got a chance and that proved it and also i think we keep harking back don't we to that um the semi-final against Roger Federer at the US Open last year but Djokovic isn't afraid of being of being match point down is he after that 400 return that he hit in that semi-final, match point down doesn't probably daunt him in the way that it used to. He just no, probably sees it as a bit of a challenge. Right. 
No, absolutely right. So it, it was a cracking match. I think it it, uh, it bodes well for hopefully a, a similar kind of clash at the ATP World Tour Finals. I'm I'm always a little wary uh, of the fact that they're playing such grueling matches, sort of a, a three weeks ahead of that tournament, because. I don't think Djokovic has turned up at the O2 yet feeling fresh um, in the last three years. And, I, and I'd really love to see the top players come there this year feeling good. That would make for a sensational tournament, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's going to be full of intrigue, whatever happens this year. I mean, touch wood, everybody's hoping. You know, we haven't heard anything to the contrary since Rafa said that the O2... World Tour Finals would be his first event back, so we have to assume that will be the case, in which case, you know, everyone's eyes are going to be firmly you on think, him. You, th- you really think Rafa will be back? I, I can't see it. I can't see him being back. Well, we have, as I say, we haven't heard anything to the contrary. I, I agree. I think it seems unlikely. It's, uh, you'd have to think that um, he'd just... He'd, he'd, I mean, why take the risk? Why take any form of risk at all when you could just have another couple of months of recovery and practice and uh, come back strong for, for 2013. Yeah. But well, it'll be interesting. That's, that's, I, I really am looking forward as ever to the uh, Barclays ATB World Tour Finals and it's something uh, I'm lucky enough to go to for BBC Radio 5 Live and uh, I think it'll be a, a really good lineup this year. David Ferrer has just qualified as well. I think it really does add something that we have a British player there for the first time in the doubles in Johnny Marry and, and good for him. What a great guy and him and his partner Freddie Nielsen will both be there. I wonder if Heather Watson and Laura Robson might be at the uh, WTA finals in years to come. They're ranked 50 and 52 respectively, as we mentioned. What we do know is that Heather Watson will be at the Royal Albert Hall as part of the Statoil Masters Tennis. That was just uh, announced yesterday. Um, She will be part of ladies night which takes place on thursday the 6th of december and heather watson will be partnering tim henman in mixed doubles at that uh, at that event and they'll be up against Anne kiothavong and mark philippousis so that'll be really something i think for tennis fans in the united kingdom to enjoy to for for some of them perhaps to see heather watson for the first time i mean it'll it'll be a great night uh 6th of december thursday evening and uh tickets are available now so if you want to see Heather Watson go to the Royal Albert Hall box office go to the Statoil Masters tennis website and you'll be able to get some tickets there we've been appealing Catherine for some questions tonight uh, on Twitter on our Twitter feed at tennis podcast and my word have we received a few uh, questions back first of all and uh, and I think we can we can admit to this uh, based on the first uh, 15 20 minutes of the podcast t- tonight um is that we haven't concentrated on the on the WTA top four, which we we're often doing on the men's side. And uh, Carolyn Gallego, I think that's how I pronounce it, uh, and I'm sure she'll she'll uh, put me right if I've got that wrong. So if I have, apologies. But she wants to know our thoughts on the top four. And I was looking down that list um, before we came on air, and it's Victoria Azarenka, who's very much the world number one at the moment, and she's just won two consecutive titles in Beijing and Linz last week, uh, beating. Maria Sharapova in Beijing, I think the fourth time this year. Serena Williams hasn't played a tournament since the US Open. 
um, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but she feels like the world number one, of course, uh, beat Azarenka in that US Open final. And then Agnieszka Radvanska, who, of course, reached the Wimbledon final earlier this year, but still feels a bit like the, the distant number four to those, to those other three. I don't know what you think. Absolutely. And everybody is a distant number two, three, four, five, six compared to Serena Williams, although the, the rankings don't bear it out. I'd, I'd like to hear somebody's argument to suggest that she isn't the, the best player in the world. Um, and it is a shame that she doesn't shame for the women's tour that she doesn't play more. Um, I do think Victoria Azarenka is a genuine challenger to her, though. I think she's we've said it several times, but we think she's the real deal, don't we? Um, and she'll yeah, be around for for years to come. Maria Sharapova, I am full of admiration for um, that. She, just her attitude and her um, her gutsiness, I suppose, and her and her determination to. I mean, there's you'd have absolutely forgiven her for turning her back on tennis. Um, and especially after, I mean, not just due to all the many other distractions she's had going on in her life and opportunities, but watching that Olympic final when she got absolutely um, taken to the cleaners by Serena Williams, she just doesn't seem to get knocked back at all, does she? She just doesn't seem to be dented in any way. She's just she's just no, going to keep just keeps- on ploughing on doesn't she yeah she's going to keep on doing her thing and um i'm full of admiration for that yeah no absolutely me too um just uh, a, a few other questions we've had in uh, matthew jones wanted to ask uh, uh, to us at tennis podcast uh who we think is going to end up having the better career out of Heather Watson and Laura Robson. Obviously, we've covered Ooh. that a little bit in the the early part of the podcast, and I think we may have addressed it in previous episodes. I, I mean, Watson has certainly given me food for thought last week. I mean, she has for a while. I think she's the sort of player who, if you tell her that she can't, she goes out and proves you wrong. Um But I do believe that Laura Robson has the greater level of talent in terms of ability to, to just take on any top player in the world and out-hit them uh, or out-serve them. And um, I think if she can stay injury-free and stay sufficiently focused and, and, and get told the right things, and I think in Jelka Krein she has the sort of coach who can do those things, I think ultimately Robson will be the one who comes out with the Grand Slam titles. I've said I've said here before that I think she will win one. I think she will be a top ten player. I think Watson can be a top twenty player and I think she can get into the second week of slams. I don't expect to see her win Grand Slams, but I would absolutely love it. Love it if she proved me wrong. I think I more or less agree. I think Heather Watson has the potential to be a very consistent player. Um, and I think she she knows her game very well, um, and I think she uses it um, she uses her game very well. But I mean, it's undeniable that Laura Robson has weapons that Heather doesn't have, and if and if she can harness those weapons, um, I'm just looking at the um, the WCA um, rankings at the moment, and it is a real mixture of the. Laura Robson model of player, which is sort of Maria Sharapova, Petra Kvitova, and the Heather Watson type of player, which is, you know, Agnieszka Radvanska, 
um, Sarah Rani, that kind of, uh, Marion Bartley, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, it's not like w- one is, you know, I was sort of thinking, oh, is, is Heather's game a bit out of date? But actually not, you know, you look at Agnieszka Radvanska, number four in the world, she's not... Um, Full of weapons and hard-hitting issues. She's that's not what the her point that about. Uh, David Eaglesham on Twitter has made though is that he doesn't believe a player of the ilk of Watson or a counterpuncher um, like Wozniacki and although she got to world number one doesn't feel that players like that when they get to the the sharp end of Grand Slams have enough power to win big titles. Um, you know, and I think if you go back to players like Martina Hingis many years ago, I think the question is: Can a player like that, who's physically overpowered or uh, you know outmatched? Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with Legends of the Game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Height-wise and, and so forth, can they can they find a way to beat a Serena Williams or to beat a Victoria Azarenka? Well, the results would suggest that 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 theory is correct. I mean, I think Justine Enam would have something to say about that. But she was a total anomaly, wasn't she, in that she had such perfection in her timing and technique. She was able to produce power and incredible shot-making in spite of her size and stature. Um, so Justine Enam aside, I'd say that that probably is the case, that that's probably an accurate assessment of, of where the women's game is at the moment as opposed to... You know, in in the late nineties when it was Martina Hingis and and that kind of player that was reigning supreme. Ben Howard on Twitter wants to know how long we think it will take Rafael Nadal to get back to his best once he declares himself fit enough to return. What do you think? 
I don't think he'll come back until he is absolutely fully fit, fully ready and raring to go. So I think probably not that long. So based on that, how long to get his form back? Well, when are we assuming he's going to come back? Because if he does make a comeback at the World Tour Finals, he's got a week, hasn't he? And and then it's the off-season, so that's that. I think he probably um, does fancy that, because I, because I, I do think it mirrors the uh, the 2009 season when when he sort of struggled for throughout the summer, um, although he won the Olympic gold, and then he... Um, was it that year? No, no. I'm, I'm thinking oh, wait, the wrong it was year. Of course, oh, of course, was when he no, sat it, out. Oh nine, he won the Australian Open. Then he sat out of Wimbledon. He went through that summer, um, and eventually he uh, he he sort of had a break, didn't he? And and came back for the ATP World Tour Finals, and he was a shadow of himself. I mean, he didn't play well at all, but there was a sort of desire, there was a hunger about him at that event. I remember commentating on his matches, and you know, his eyes were popping out of his skull with the intensity of the way he was playing the points, and yet he lost all three singles matches. But uh, but I remember thinking at that that time just watch out this guy is going to come out with steam coming out of his nostrils in australia and that is what happened and and um you know he, he i do believe that he he would probably like to do that in a best case scenario just to get back into it i suspect it's going to come too early i think he'll end up coming out in in australia and doing the same thing when do i think he'll get back to his best i think when when we get onto the clay and it's not just because it's clay but i think that time span works well i think when we get to monte carlo in april watch out rafael nadal will be back oh i've i've no doubt that by the clay court season next year we'll be speaking about him in the same terms we were in the clay court season this year i think it could be a bit sooner than that i think he could be a force to be reckoned with um early earlier on next season i mean it, it does all depend when he when he does actually come back i mean we will have to see. But as I say, I don't think he's going to make a tentative return. I, I think he's going to come out all guns blazing, you know, eyes popping out of his skull, as you say, desperate to um, to claw back his position at the top. How about we uh, we address our uh, Goran Ivanusevic interview part two? Because last week we heard from Goran, who talked about uh, his early upbringing, his uh, early career in which he played against the backdrop of the Balkans War and the uh, devastation he he experienced in those Wimbledon final losses to Pete Sampras uh, in 1994 and 1998 and of course the earlier one against Andre Agassi in 1992 and there was the question mark, wasn't there? Will he ever do it? That was the the question mark on everybody's lips and Goran admitted it took him three years to, to feel happy again in his interview with uh, Catherine Whitaker. Well, it wasn't three years since he was interviewed by Catherine, I should add. It was three years <laughs> since uh, since he was uh, defeated by Pete Sampras in that 1998 uh, Wimbledon final because, you know, he, he enjoyed the interview with Catherine, so he wasn't going to be depressed about that. Uh, but, the, you know, we, we talked to him about uh, that 2001 run, uh, a year really at Wimbledon that I think nobody will ever forget. I think it was one of my all-time favourite years. It was the year that Roger Federer announced himself on the world stage by beating Pete 
beat Sampras. It was the year that uh, Tim Henman reached the semi-finals and became closer than he have ever ha- would do again and ever had been before of reaching a Wimbledon final in that three-day rain-interrupted uh, semi-final against Goran. And really the stars seemed to be aligning when Federer knocked out his nemesis, Goran's nemesis, Pete Sampras, in the fourth round. And we asked Goran if he thought at that moment this could be the year. No, no. I didn't, uh, I was not really because I, I mean, that was like miles away. I didn't even think about Sampras. I didn't even think about anybody else. I just thought about myself and uh, I didn't care because I felt it after second round I'm going to win the tournament. So I didn't care who was coming, Sampras, Federer, whoever. For me it was just, uh, but I could not say that, you know. When I beat Carlos in the second round, they gave me so much shit in the paper to Carlos. They said, how can you lose to... And I really played well, and I felt it, I played well, and I, every match I played better and better. So I didn't even care about Sampras losing. And obviously you didn't, Henman took care of uh, Federer that year for you, but I imagine you watched that match, Federer against Sampras. Did you know then how good Federer was? I knew before. I, I, I said also in some to some people that when this guy... He's going to be number one as soon as he changed something in his head. And uh, he needs to win something big. And then he's going to be non-stopping. He's going to go just 300 kilometers on the highway without any stopping. And that happens, you know. That was, when you he, got that one right. When he won the 2003, four, three. three, when he beat Mark in the final. You know, just... He went into the car and just never stopped. <laughs> just straight. What do you remember about the night before your final with with Rafter? Were you a bundle of nerves? Were you actually no? I was not. I was. Uh, that's why when I look at I look at so many times that final. I started much better than him because I was less nervous than him because I just wanted to end this match I wanted to start and end and I could not wait anymore and I started much better I remember that I had the same dinner I went to return my video around 9.45 was queue huge queue already waiting for the tickets and I just was so happy when I entered the court and that atmosphere which never ever in the history of Wimbledon because now we have a roof it's going to happen so it's just uh, I was so happy to begin I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, I was already ready, to, I didn't sleep. I was ready at 6 in the morning, and ready like, ready to play. When we think about it, David and I worry about what might have become of you if you hadn't won that Wimbledon final. When you think about it, do you have any idea where you'd be right now if, if that final had gone a different way? I probably I'll be here, in, in Knocky. <laughs> Just a little bit less happy. Uh, just a little bit. Probably happy, but answering you the different kind of answer. Now, uh, that would be a very big, huge disappointment. But I, I, I was not even came to my mind when I step on that court that is any possibility. Even the match was nine seven and fifty. You know, I didn't win like two two and two. You know, it was, it was pretty close, and the fifth set was could go anyway 
I didn't even think about that I can lose that match. I didn't even want to think that I can get another plate. I don't want any plates. I mean, it's a beautiful plate, but I don't, you don't want to have it. Where do you keep the trophy then in your house? My father has it in a split. Really? Yeah. Do you not want to look at it every day? Uh, actually, now I was in split. I look at these three plates. I look at the trophy. It's, it's so the, the plates are with the trophy. The plates aren't in a cupboard somewhere. No, no, trophy is different. In, the <laughs> in a special. Place. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to mix that. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, afternoon plates, the tea plates with the, <laughs> the beautiful trophy. You know? And um, you mentioned one of your superstitions there, which was going renting video every evening. Can you talk me through the other superstitions that you had? Uh, that that fortnight because I know there were a fair few. Oh, there is uh, waking up same breakfast, same time. Oh, I had to pack my bag, Teletubbies, bloody Teletubbies. But they were good, they were fun. Do you ever watch the Teletubbies <laughs> now? Uh, Teletubbies. Just for uh, a couple of times I did, but I watched with my son a lot. He loved it. But they were fun. I was laughing a lot with this Teletubbies stuff and. Uh, Parking at the same place, uh, using the same uh, bathroom, using the same shower. Uh, you know, it's so many stepping the lines. Uh, it's it's. But once you get into, you, if you forget one, you think you're gonna lose. So it's better. It doesn't take too much time to do it. So it's better to do it. And one last question: You, you, your son Emmanuel, who's three, four. He's gonna be five in wow. October. He is very keen on tennis, isn't he? Yeah. And your dad was very involved in your tennis career. Could you see yourself being a tennis dad? I hope I don't have to be, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but uh, he is keen. He told me the other day that he wants to play tennis because he loves to play tennis. <laughs> and he really loves to play tennis. If I have to be, I'm going to be, but uh, I'd rather him to play some other sport. Trying to steer him in another direction. (laughs) Trick him. This is not good. Hypnotize him. Hide his tennis rackets. Just maybe hire somebody to hypnotize him. During his leaves, tennis is bad. But don't don't you feel like tennis has given you so much joy and happiness? It is. It is. If I can't tell him what to do, I'm going to help him whatever sport, whatever, even if he wants to be, I don't know, whatever, uh, mathematicians, whoever, whatever. But he loves sport. He is not bad in that. And uh, But he's, he's too, young, too young to see what it's going to be. He can change his mind 50 times. But tennis gave me everything. Tennis gave me my friends, my life, my everything what I have. And uh, I would not change tennis for anything in my life. I, if I have to choose again, I will choose tennis again. So if he wants to take tennis, it's not easy, easy job, easy trip, easy whatever. It's going to be a lot of ups and downs, but uh, at least I can tell him, help him uh, with that, you know. But if I will coach him, that is a good question. I don't think so, because probably I will kill him <laughs> after <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> I will hang him on the tree <laughs> somewhere. So I... <laughs> So I will find him a coach. <laughs> Maybe Bob Brown. I don't think Bob wants to deal with it. He will kill me and him. <laughs> so, somebody. But we see still time. Emmanuel Ivanisevic. Catherine, could it happen? Could we have another 
member of the Ivan Izovich family as a top tennis player. What do you think? I tell you what, if there's anybody out there that likes a bit of a long-range gamble, if if you could get a bookie to give you a, a 10,000 to 1 on Emmanuel Ivan Izovich being a, being a Grand Slam champion one day, I'd, I'd take it because... I he's the most talented toddler I have ever seen and that is genuinely without any encouragement from from Goran you know the Goran says he's, he almost actively discourages him from from playing tennis he's never given him any coaching and honestly the kid is something something to behold so watch this space wow. you might have to be watching wow. for quite a long time but um wow goodness me well, that that uh, that interview, of course, the second part of that interview touched on Goran Ivanovic and his Wimbledon triumph, and and as to, it was for me, it's it's probably one of the ultimate "Where were you when?" questions in tennis. You know, where were you, Catherine, when when Goran Ivanovic um, won that Wimbledon title, uh, and how were you feeling? We know who you were supporting. You were supporting Pat yeah, Rafter, yeah. but uh, all right. But <laughs> Prepare to feel old, then. Prepare to feel old. I was in my secondary school um, computer room, uh, watching with a, uh, a group of schoolmates on a tiny little TV, supporting, as we know, Pat Rafter. Everybody else in the room was supporting Goran, and I hated them for it. Um, and it it was it was quite a memory. I I can't. I only remember one person I wasn't even particularly friends with the people in the room with me at the time but at the end of it I felt like we were all friends because it was such an experience and um in another world I might have been there because um I remember I was 15 at the time so I was too young to just sort of pitch up on my own and queue but I remember when it was announced that it was going to be a Monday final I sort of looked at my dad and said come on uh, and he called his work or he looked into looked into whether he would possibly be able to take the day off. Um, but alas, it was not to be. So thank you very much, Bechtel, the company my dad worked for at the time. Um, I wasn't there. <laughs> oh well, not to, I wasn't there either. Uh, it was uh, it was the year before um, I joined the Five Live uh, tennis team. So. I didn't get the chance to to be there either, um, but I was in a tournament in Gstaad in Switzerland uh, at the time uh, because that you know the the travelling circus nature of the tennis tour means that just as one tournament is ending, we're all pitching up at the next one, and it's it's alarming to to be at a tournament like a like a Grand Slam where you have an absolutely packed uh, locker room and uh, player lounge for 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 the best part of four or five days, and gradually as the two weeks. Uh, go on the 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 amount of people in those areas gets le- smaller and smaller and um when we got to the to the get to the final weekend of a slam suddenly there's probably what you know three or four 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 or five players left um in, in total there's a, there's obviously the finalists there's a, the doubles finalists and and a, a few coaches knocking around and that's about it and there we were in Gestad in Switzerland and uh, this beautiful tournament crammed into the player lounge where where the tournament has yet to start and you've got all 32 main singles draw players you've got all the doubles players you've got all the coaches all the tour managers i, I was in there as well as the communications manager of the atp at the 
time. And you've got players like Ivan Lubicic, who's Goran's compatriot, literally looking through his fingers and, and sobbing his heart out as, as, uh, as the final oh few gosh, points wow. are played out. I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating. Him and his wife were sitting there absolutely in floods of tears. The match hadn't even finished yet. You've got Jeff Tarango, who's giving a, a sort of commentary on every single point to the rest of the room and uh, and telling Goran where he'd got to serve. And uh, Because uh, I think a good amount of them, the majority, as, as popular as Pat Rafter is and was, the majority knew what this meant to Goran. And, and and we said last week, nobody has a bad word to say about Goran within tennis. And, and the majority of that room were in Goran's camp and, and it was an incredibly emotional moment not just for anybody who was in that stadium but, but for, for the rest of the world watching I, I, I strongly believe that I, I saw, um, I asked uh, the people on Twitter who follow us at Tennis Podcast just before we came on for some of their memories and uh, and somebody with the wonderful uh, handle of babbling brat has, uh, <laughs> has told me that uh, she experienced tears of joy uh, we've also had uh, a message from Swedish Meatball78, uh, who said that he queued all morning to get in, and it was one of the best moments he can he can ever remember because of the atmosphere. And I think that that's that's one thing Goran touched on, isn't it? I've never seen an atmosphere at a tennis match like that before or since, um, because everybody was just allowed to get in you know on the day and it was croatian flags everywhere it was australian flags everywhere chanting it was like a football crowd and and uh you know i wish we had more of that it was absolutely mm, it was special wasn't it and it's with some it's almost with regret that goran talks about the roof because um he knows that that'll never happen again um and that is you know obviously 99 percent um of the time the roof is a positive thing but um but it is a shame that that we'll never have an occasion like that again at Wimbledon. But that's right. I suppose it we makes did have it all one, the more special. We, we, it did make it more special. We did have one dissenting voice uh, from Mark Black who said that Goran's behaviour was a disgrace, and I was gutted for Rafter. And basically, what he's getting at is uh, the way that Goran had a, one of his customary meltdowns in the fifth set and kicked the net and started swearing a bit and all that kind of thing. But you know. This is Goran Ivanisevic, isn't it? And he does get a bit irate sometimes, and it was the the biggest day of his life. I think we can forgive that, can't we? Yeah, sorry, we are a bit biased, aren't we? And we see incidents like that through the through the lens of of people who sort of know him and 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 love him for all of his all of his uh, feistiness and and everything like that. But I suppose strictly, you know, that's that's not technically sportsmanlike conduct, isn't it? It's so. Some people are sticklers for that, so... Um. Yes, well, fair play, Mark. You, you have every right to your opinion, but um, I don't agree with you. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's uh, that's Goran Ivanisevic, who, uh, who will never be forgotten for the way he won Wimbledon in 2001. And uh, we, we love seeing him on the, the Champions Tour. We, we get to work with him, which is a, a real pleasure. And uh, he will be at the Statoil Masters Tennis himself in London at the Royal Albert Hall from the 5th to the 9th of December. Come and watch him play along with John McEnroe and Tim Henman and Pat Cash and all of the other great characters from the past um they'll all be there and it'll be a cracking few days uh that's it for from us i think for now isn't it catherine or do we have anything else to cover just before we go on the tennis podcast 
I was going to suggest we give a quick nod to Roger Federer's 300th week at World oh, yeah. Number One. That, that's a bit. That's a bit remiss of me not to uh, acknowledge Roger Federer having become it's, the, it's uh, the most prolific World Number One in I history. Mean, no, yeah, I mean it literally doesn't happen every week. It literally can only happen every 300th week. So, um, so yeah, absolutely Just the six incredible. Years at one. I mean, are there enough superlatives to? Uh, to no, give to give sufficient credit to that achievement, I'm not sure there are. No, well, I think it's it's one of the uh, one of the records. You wonder whether it'll ever be broken. I mean, I know I know they're good mates, and I know that Sampras has been only only kind in his words about Roger Federer over the years. But imagine if you'd put the years in that he had, and he'd he'd amassed the records that he had, and he'd finally broken Roy Emerson's Grand Slam record, and he'd finally broken Ivan Lendl's Weeks at Number One record. And, you know, you, you might think you'd get a few years to enjoy it before some Swiss upstart comes along and breaks them all, wouldn't you? Has Sampras got any records left now? I'm just racking my. He brains. has one left. He has one left that that I know Is when he when he set it, he th- he thought would never be broken, and I and I suspect he may well be right. And it was the years, I think, years in a row that he was number one in the world at the end of the year, and right. uh, and I think it was. I can't remember whether it was five or six years in a row that he did it. And, and I remember the final year that he did it was, uh, I think, 1998. And I remember the stress yeah. on his face as he managed to do it. Um, and, of course, Roger Federer hasn't been able to do that, um, partly because of Rafael Nadal getting in the way, of course, his his nemesis. Um, but I, I wonder whether any player will ever break that record. Um, and and well, I'm sure Pete's clinging on to that one. one. Doesn't he? Let's let him have that one. Roger, just... Yeah. Just let him have it. Yeah, it's supposed to be his friend, for God's one. sake. Just, just let him have one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been enjoyable as always, Catherine. I hope, uh, hope you've all enjoyed uh, listening to episode sixteen of the tennis podcast, and we'll be back next week with more. Speak to you then. So Goran won it. Thank goodness for that. He knew almost instantly that he could now retire happily and settle down for an easy life supporting West Bromwich Albion. Well, that's what I told him anyway. We'll be back next week with more tennis chat and another big interview as we count down to the ATP World Tour Finals and the Statoil Masters Tennis. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.